The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, September the 20th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. The word Brexit has been notable by its absence from this studio over the last couple of years. The turbulent events which culminated in the UK's departure from the European Union in a welter of deadlines and crises and political dramas appears to have receded well into the rearview mirror at this point, and most of us are quite happy with that. But Brexit wasn't a one-off event and its consequences continue to be felt. Peter Foster covered the whole thing, first for the Daily Telegraph and more recently for the Financial Times, and he was an occasional guest on this show over that period. Now he has written a book, What Went Wrong with Brexit and What to Do About It. Peter Foster, you're very welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. The book's called What Went Wrong with Brexit and What Can We Do About It? The short answer, uh, a lot of our listeners would say was, it was a terrible idea, badly executed. But I think there's there's somewhat more to it than that. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, it was a terrible idea. You know, certainly from the point of view of Ireland, it was a terrible idea. I think what I try and explain in the book is that it was always going to be difficult to make Brexit work, certainly from an economic point of view. The, the trade and cooperation agreement, despite all the promises that we could have on it, cake and eat it, was essentially a reverse trade deal. You know, trade deals are there to remove trade barriers. And it was a deal that put trade barriers back between Great Britain and its largest market, by far the European Union, whilst the people that did that promised that they could offset that with buccaneering Britain trade deals with countries that are over the hill and a long way away. And of course, that was never going to be the case. And, you know, if you're in the business of moving things and making things, it's been a pretty tough three and a half years now since uh, since the deal came into force. I mean, I don't, I, God knows, I don't want to relitigate all the events of those years from 2016 to 2021 or 2022 even. But just in terms of what you've said there, one of the running paradoxes of this thing from the start, as you say, was that, you know, the single market and the customs union, which became painted as these, you know, draconian, over-regulated symbols of, of European interference, were actually quite Thatcherite in the origin of their thinking. They were about removing barriers. They were about letting trade flow. And so there was a kind of, as you say there, reverse engineering of what on one level was very much a free market, libertarian kind of a proposition. No, indeed. And there's a species of a Brexiteer, a Lexiteer, as they call them, who from the left, you know, hated European Union membership because it they viewed it as a corporate conspiracy, as you say, as something that was, you know, an inflicting of, of you know, Thatcherite ideas. And in fact, you know, if you go back to the 1970s, the extent to which the single market made the UK more competitive when the UK was the sick man of Europe was because it actually forced our companies to compete with more efficient and more productive companies on our doorstep. And that, of course, also undermined the labour unions that had paralysed so much of UK economy and manufacturing in the 1970s. And as you say, you know, one of the kind of great ironies of Brexit is that the, the, the sense of the single market, you know, that we were shackled to a corpse was the famous phrase. But of course, it was the exact opposite. Membership of the single market made the UK economy more productive, more dynamic, 
It made us, uh, you know, a bigger economy than the other was, would have been. It was a mechanism by which we attracted a lot of foreign direct investment as a, an entrepot into Europe, particularly US investment, because, you know, they shared the common language. You could go to Heathrow and nip down the road and set up in Swindon like Motorola did, etc. But none of that was really part of the of the original debate. You know, it, what's amazing is just how deep-seated the kind of narratives about bendy bananas and EU red tape became. And one of the things I try and, you know, explain in the book, what I call the red tape fallacy, is that that red tape, you know, was on the one hand red tape, but also it was the gateway to a market of 500 million people, 450 million now, that allowed you to put your box of bangers in a... In a in a, a van in Birmingham and drive it without let or hindrance to Barcelona or Bonn or Bratislava, and you know the, that basic understanding of the single market, people sort of took it for granted, like it was sort of there, like the air we breathe. And of course, it wasn't. It was there, a construct of twenty eight nations pooling their sovereignty, submitting to a single rule book and a single court for matters of trade, where where you needed a level playing field. But all of that kind of never landed. And you've got a you've got a couple of case studies of individual companies, and you look at a couple of sort of broader issues in certain certain sectors like haulage and and agriculture of the of the changes which which have happened so far. And the news is not good for any of those. Is it going to get worse? Is divergence between the the UK economy and the EU economy going to mean that those sorts of drag forces are are going to going to make things worse and worse over the next few years, or is there some way of pulling back on that? Well, as things stand, it's going to get worse. One of the sort of misunderstandings, I think, about Brexit is that it's a finite event and that everyone will get used to it and we'll all move on. But actually, if you look at the business surveys, what you see is companies continuing to say that they are struggling with the frictions thrown up by Brexit. And that is because they're still there. Even if you've got used to the safety and security declarations and the rules of origin and the customs forms, that friction is still there it still makes it marginally more expensive and more complicated, more importantly, and less reliable to buy something from uh, uh, Peter in Brighton than it does from Pedro in Barcelona. And so, you know, that isn't going to be removed just because people get used to it. It remains there. I think there is then another generation of Uh, frictions that are coming down the track. And I'm thinking of things like the carbon border taxes that the EU is going to introduce, supply chain due diligence, plastic packaging due diligence, etc., which as the EU continues to regulate in spheres and as the UK, even where it remains stationary, passively diverges from the European Union regulatory orbit, that will create just further frictions for those businesses that you know, need to trade into the European Union. And an awful lot of our, um, you know, higher end manufacturers are part of integrated supply chains in the EU. They're, you know, they're what's called intermediate manufacturers. And I think the danger for the UK is not that, you know, all the the businesses shut and there's a mass unemployment crisis. It's just this steady removal of the UK from higher value manufacturing supply chains and to be replaced by lower productivity, lower output jobs. So, you know, for example, Honda left Swindon and the site that was the Honda car factory on that was full of engineers and technicians, etc., is going to be replaced by a large logistics company. Now, there isn't an unemployment crisis in Swindon, but those 
higher paying, higher productivity jobs have been replaced by lower paying, lower productivity jobs in aggregate. And that, I think, is, you know, a real challenge for the UK going forward. Yeah, I mean, our listeners will be familiar with much of that. I know I, like many other people in in Ireland, um, struggled for the first 12 months or so with uh, being directed to United Kingdom sites uh, to buy things and then finding we were getting, you know, hit with charges that we didn't want to pay. And we've all more or less sorted out uh, those things here and now, which means that we're not buying that stuff from the UK anymore. Well, yeah, and actually, you know, remember the borders coming. That's the other thing. You know, for goods coming from the European Union into the UK, into GB, there hasn't been a border yet. And actually, the border for plant and animal products, the SPS, the phytosanitary border, doesn't start until April next year. And that will be expense and that will be, you know, cumbersome for uh, Irish beef exporters, for example. So in that sense... If you're looking at it from the European end of the telescope, Brexit hasn't actually landed in lots of respects because we actually kept delaying the imposition of our border for goods coming from the EU into GB. So, Peter, I went, you know, in the interest of research, I went looking for a counter argument to your, your narrative. I thought, you know, there must be, you know, this was a major political and intellectual project. There must be people who will be seeking to deconstruct your argument that things are uh, are, are not going as well as was promised. And, and and I searched in vain until I came across the review of your book in your old newspaper, uh, The Telegraph <laughs> by, uh, by Daniel Hannan. And to be honest, I did search in vain still because it seemed to me, I mean, the, the Daniel Hannan, who is a prominent figure in, in this whole political process, which which led to this, um, a political figure, I was looking for him to attempt at least to debunk or to refute the evidence which you showed of the negative impact of of all this and the United Kingdom economy. And what I got was a bunch of stuff about Ramoners uh, and Brexit derangement syndrome and things like this. And and. Really, a, a, an incredible, to my mind, level of intellectual vacuity. I know we've given off about this in Ireland, you know, for years about the about the Brexit process, but it almost seemed to me that the arguments had become incredibly dog-eared at this point. I felt I was, you know, it was a retread of stuff which had been tired four or five years ago. And I don't say that in order to praise you. I, I say it because it makes me wonder about what's the overall mood of the pro-Brexit political camp in the United Kingdom now? Are they are they sort of in retreat, a sort of a sullen retreat? I think they are. You know, just I say that just because if you look at the polls, even among Tory voters in 2019 who voted for Johnson and the get Brexit done election, there are high levels of dissatisfaction with Brexit. They blame Brexit for making the cost of living crisis worse. They blame Brexit for putting pressures on the NHS. They blame Brexit for making the, you know, the economy weaker than it otherwise would have been. And so there are some people who were part of very much the Johnson-Frost, including David Frost, Lord Frost, who negotiated the trade deal, trying to defend the Brexit that they built, the very hard Brexit that they built. And as you said, you know, the problem with the Hannan Review was that actually he didn't engage with the substance, which was a shame in a way, because the point of the book, you know, pieties aside, is to not try and settle old arguments, is try and start a better conversation. And actually, there's lots in the book that a Brexiteer like Dan Hannan would thoroughly disagree with. For example, the levels of alignment that I suggest we're probably going to have to agree to, the levels of rule taking, which a Brexiteer would say is unconscionable. But that has to be the beginning of the next conversation. Is that, okay, if we're not going to dynamically align in sectors where our economy requires it, 
What are we going to do? Because so far, the, well, let's deregulate, let's have what Jacob Rees-Mogg called a productivity boost from ripping up EU law, from offering you know, industry a different set of regulations from the EU. Well, it hasn't really happened. Not only is it not delivered anything, but actually when they went to business and said, you can, you know, we can re-regulate, we can do things differently. Broadly speaking, business said, we don't want that. We don't want two sets of regulations, one for the EU, one for the UK. And so while there might be upsides from, say, you know, regulating clinical drug trials more efficiently, the trouble is you always have to offset the potential upsides of that in an individual sector against the wider issue of the UK being in a different regulatory sphere from its largest market and the market on its doorstep. And that dual regulatory sphere, uh, you know, has deterred investment and makes the UK, you know, in sort of in an unstable regulatory position structurally. And even if the UK does nothing, it's like an iceberg that's carved off the regulatory ice sheet that is the European Union, and it's slowly drifting away. There's a ratchet over time. And so if you're an investor and you're looking at making a 10, 15-year investment, you really don't know how that regulatory sphere is going to emerge over time. And that's why Brexit is different from sort of one-off shocks. There's a good, very good paper, paper done by the, some Bank of England economists looking at the difference between Brexit, the ongoing grinding uncertainty of Brexit, compared to, say, one-off all shocks, the 1970s all shock uh, the, the financial crisis of 2008, 9-11, etc., where you have these big events that do create economic shock, but then business adjusts and moves on. The trouble with Brexit is it creates structural uncertainty. And there hasn't been an answer to that, really. So in that sense, is it, is it not more akin to what it always was, really, which was a nationalist project? So even though, and, and, and it was very much presented as that by the likes of Nigel Farage talking about Independence Day. But in a way, it is more like that, isn't it? It's, it's, it's probably a bit more like the way that Ireland left the United Kingdom in the 1920s and it wasn't exactly plain sailing economically for many decades after as it struggled to, to, to find its, its place in the world. It's more like that, isn't it? It's about politics rather than about economics, although the economic effects, you know, may run very deep. A lot of Irish nationalists promised, you know, a land of milk and honey for an independent Ireland. Didn't turn out. No, indeed. And, 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 and therefore, you know, where, where Brexiteers do defend the project, it is about sovereignty, about freedom, about taking back control, about the right to set their rules. The, the, the difficulty, I think, is that they then say, and we're going to be, you know, more buccaneering, more productive, happier, healthier, freer, etc., the trouble is that the polls would suggest, the public opinion polls would suggest that the public aren't buying it. And that's why I think there needs to be a conversation about what to do about Brexit. You know, the book's called What Went Wrong With Brexit and What To Do About It. I actually don't put my finger in the balance in terms of what we should do about it. You know, the trouble is I think that you, what you need is a cogent argument for a different course and I don't think that's ever really been made. So, you know, Brexit would say, listen, you Remainers, you're trying to put back together, you know, a Ming vase that has been smashed. You need to accept that the Ming vase has been smashed and move on and build a, a, another different vessel. The difficulty is, I think, that a lot of the suggestions are around deregulation, Singapore on Thames, or, or you know, other trade deals around the world, but they so far, those numbers 
haven't added up. And there hasn't really been a cogent case as to why they would add up. And, you know, there are a few economists out there on the fringes, but the vast majority of the economists uh, who are looking at this, you know, whether it's the OBR, the Bank of England, LSE, the Resolution Foundation, you know, they don't construct or can't construct a cogent counter-narrative, and Brexiteers certainly haven't done so. And so, you know, the argument in the book is, you know, at the very least, let's have a fact-based argument about what to do. And it may be that, as you say, it's a nationalist political project, and that actually there's no stomach among the UK political world to go back and rejoin the EU. I mean, in the book, I set myself the exercise that both main political parties are not going to rejoin the EU. Both main political parties are overselling the extent to which you can fix. You know, you can't be half pregnant, really, the TCA. If you're outside the single market, you're kind of outside it. And even if you reduce the frictional disadvantage, you're still at a marginal frictional disadvantage. And so maybe the argument is, if we're just honest about the corner that we've backed ourselves into, we might actually be more willing to tackle some of the difficult things that we need to do at home, whether it's skills and planning, etc., to create a post-Brexit investment offer for the UK, which at the moment is sort of not there. And so the process of levelling with the country and levelling with ourselves about Brexit may actually be a process of, you know, the UK deciding, in all honesty, what it's going to do if we accept that we're not going to rejoin the single market anytime soon. And yet there seem to be some very significant political blocks in the way of that sort of productive discussion starting. And it certainly doesn't seem to be happening. I, I think you argued that, that in the book. I can kind of understand why it's a problem for the post-Boris Johnson, post-Liz Truss facing electoral defeat Tory party because of where it is and its political lifespan and what, what lies ahead of it. But the question of the Labour Party is is probably more important because the likelihood is, based on the polls we're looking at at the moment, that it's Keir Starmer who'll be leading whatever moves are made to uh, to develop or to, to fix some of these problems over the next while. And he has been, for understandable electoral reasons, incredibly cautious. Yes, indeed. And, you know, the voters that the Labour Party lost in with the so-called red wall, the seats of the, the Midlands and the North, as Johnson said, you know, red car turned blue car, those voters deserted Labour over the Brexit question and they went Tory. And the Labour Party has been super cautious, as you say, about doing anything that would indicate that, you know, those people had made a duff decision, etc. I think that's had two consequences. One is there has been no pitch rolling for a movement back towards Europe which is what the Labour Party is also promising. So if you think in a normal course of events, you'd expect that the very sovereignty first Tory Brexit that you describe, uh, you'd think in a normal course of events that the, the Labour opposition would be have spent the last two years pointing the finger at the consequences of that Brexit. See, look what it's done to the car industry. See, look what it's done to the manufacturers. See, look what it's done to the musicians and the fashion uh, industry. See, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, that hasn't happened. So you haven't had um, either political party being prepared to level with the public who, who you know, are coming to their own conclusions about Brexit. 
And that, I think, creates an interesting dynamic, assuming that Starmer wins the election, which the polls suggest that he will. Because Starmer is saying he wants to get back and fix Brexit, fix the European Union, which will mean moving closer. It will mean doing a veterinary deal, they've said, doing some deal on mobility, probably, on mutual recognition of professional qualifications, if they can get it, etc. But the question I would ask is, how ready is the country for that, given that there's 40 years of political narrative that goes the other way? You know, if he does that, he'll be the first UK prime minister to be advocating moving closer to Europe for decades. And, you know, maybe that will fly. Maybe maybe they think they can do it under the table, you know, but they won't have a great democratic mandate to do it if they don't make clear in their manifesto what they're planning to do. And they're also going to have to bat away an awful lot of political rhetoric on the right about plotting to sell the country out to Brussels. You saw it last week when Sir Keir Starmer went to The Hague to talk about doing migration returns deal. You know, the, head, the headline on the front of the Daily Telegraph and the Daily Mail were all about, you know, Starmer plots to let migrants in from the EU. So if the Labour Party is going to do that, it's going to have to row against, as I say, decades of negative political narrative about moving closer to Europe And it's going to have to be brave and take on and stand up to a barrage of rhetoric on the right, accusing them of turning the UK into Brussels poodles, selling out the UK's sovereign right, etc., etc. And not all of it will be without substance. You know, the level of alignment a lot of people are talking about will require the UK to end up being a significant rule taker. That will be politically difficult. And I think actually one of the dangers for the UK is that when it comes down to it, a first term Starmer government actually rather loses its nerve, doesn't really do what needs to be done to mitigate the worst effects of Brexit. And the commercial, diplomatic, etc. relationships between the UK and the EU have a half-life. The longer it goes on, the more they atrophy. And so we'll see, you know, where we are, assuming we get a Labour government at the end of their first term, have we got a platform for deeper, closer relationships with our neighbourhood? Or have we, as one Foreign Office diplomat said to me, essentially just lapsed into Sunak 2.0, where the story of Labour's first term is their gradual disillusionment with Europe and the European Commission? Hold that rather depressing thought because I do want to come back to it. We're going to take this very quick break just to remind our listeners that if they don't subscribe to the Irish Times, they really should. Uh, they can go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe in order to do so. We'll be back after this. Peter, you were talking just before the break. You were laying out a, a, a rather grim vista, I think, of of, of what might pan out in a Kirstarmer led Labour government um, in terms of of, of any closer alignment that would improve prospects for, for the British economy. And listening to you there just before the break, I mean, the thing that occurred to me was, is there some way that the Brexit fever needs to break in order for the British political system to move on and to deal with its consequences? And that in a way, a version of what you talked about the Brexiteers saying, the vase is completely broken, now we need to put it back together in a different way, that that needs to happen. But for that to happen, some kind of some kind of crisis, political or economic crisis, rather than this grinding uh, moment we're in at the moment needs to happen. 
Well, what was Liz Truss if it wasn't a political and economic well, yeah, crisis, absolutely. right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, my, my feeling is that's deeply unlikely because, you know, the costs of Brexit are not catastrophic. Nobody lives in non-Brexit Britain. You know, the economists like John Springfield at Centre for European Reform or Jun Du at Aston University in Birmingham build their doppelganger models to show you what life might have been, what exports might have been. But, of course, nobody lives in that world. And going back to what I was trying to explain before about higher productivity jobs being replaced by lower productivity jobs, yes, you know, the UK economy is less productive, is less well-off. Yes, it's falling behind its peer economies over time. You know, middle-class incomes are falling behind those uh, in America and, and indeed Europe over time. But whether there is ever a kind of moment of crisis and reckoning, I sincerely doubt. And I think that's the, that's the, the danger, is the slow puncture. It's the, the boiling of the frog. And that's why, you know, insofar as I do argue prescriptions in the book, I think if we want to avoid that... There is an inflection point. There is a natural moment for a course correction, which is the election, if, it's, if the polls are right, of a Labour government, of a government that's not wedded to this version of Brexit and is going to stand up to those people who say the only one true Brexit is the version that Johnson and Frost negotiated. But that is going to take political courage. It's going to take... It's going to require a decision to put your finger in the balance to show leadership when politically it might be easier just to keep applying local anaesthetic to local problems and keep muddling on. And the difficulty, of course, is that the, the, the British economy is not in good shape and won't, won't be next year either after, you know, after the election. So there's not much headwind or breathing space for, for that Labour government. No, precisely. And so you, that's why I say you can see a world where despite some quite good intentions that are around at the moment as the manifestos are drawn up on the Labour side, the pressures of office are, um, are, are legion. And, you know, the returns from the re-engagement with Europe, if that's what Labour chooses to do, are not immediate. You know, Starmer said, we're not joining the customs union, we're not joining the single market. So the things that they are looking to do, um, you know, a veterinary deal, mutual recognition of professional qualifications, they say. Well, you know, Canada has a similar provision in their trade deal to do that. They had nine rounds of negotiation for over a year, and they did one deal on architects. Well, that isn't going to change the price of fish in the British economy, I can tell you. And so the danger, I think, is that you cop a lot of political flack if you're Keir Starmer for not much obvious um, return, particularly when Europe's got lots of other things to worry about. They've frankly moved on from the Brexit psychodrama of the last five years. You know, we'll be looking to see whether, you know, UK politics is really going to move on or, you know, are we going to have five years of Starmer and go back to an even more um, uh, nationalist uh, uh, Tory government in five years' time. And so that's why I say, and, and, you know, I know, you know, some people are saying, you know, that if you're going to cop the political flack, if you're going to have an effort to fix Brexit and to really restore the relations between the UK and the EU, you might as well go large, you know, so go large or go home.
I think, is is one argument. And what and, would Golarge mean? Well, that, so that's a good question. I think I think it means that Keir Starmer needs to go very easy. He's off to Paris next week, isn't he, to, uh, to see Emmanuel Macron. Um, I think it means saying to the EU that we want an end to the kind of slightly zero-sum, not slightly, entirely zero-sum approach, or mainly zero-sum approach, how about that, uh, to relations. And then I think that, that requires you to put something on the table. And that might be, for example, deciding that you're going to align, legally link and align your carbon markets because you have shared concerns and, and shared ambitions on net zero. It means... Uh, a shared uh, uh, and some apparatus on neighbourhood security and defence. And I'm thinking about things like Operation Altea. You could send advisors there. You could, um, you know, pool some of your resources in terms of ammunition, etc. The European Defence Fund for Ukraine. Think about rejoining Erasmus, um, which is something that the Europeans would like. Think about an offer on mobility for professionals, etc., can I just ask, are those things, I mean, maybe naive here, but those things don't sound incredibly radical to me. Would they be likely to really frighten the horses in the in the UK right now? Well, it depends how they're depicted. You know, the, the, the linking of carbon markets, that seems absolutely fine, doesn't it? Well, you know, who cares about carbon markets? But essentially, you're just exporting, or the danger is you just get accused of exporting your net zero policy to the European Union. And you build up a political narrative. Same with, you know, your veterinary agreement. If the EU exists on a dynamic alignment veterinary deal and then the EU bans a pesticide as part of their EU regulation that is essential for English oat farmers to grow their crops or English oilseed rape farmers, right? Then very quickly you get back into the rhetoric of being Brussels poodle of, you know, accepting, you know, and actually because you don't have a seat at the table, because you've given up your seat at the table, a lot of that, you know, dynamic sectoral alignment, as it's being called, does indeed leave you as a rule taker. And it won't be easy and it won't be easy for Labour ministers when they get in their seats, if they do indeed get in their seats, as it is for Tory ministers. And I think making the case for it will be much more politically difficult, I suspect, than they anticipate. And that's why I think you have to make the bigger argument that this is about protecting our economy, it's about delivering investment, it's about creating better paying jobs and making the United Kingdom a full part of the neighbourhood of which it's inevitably a part uh, and not making a kind of series of arguments about, zero-sum arguments about the UK sort of, you know, running off into a corner to do its own thing all the time and stealing a march. You, know, you have to get back into a discussion about level playing fields, accepting that the world is global, is networked, and that we need to be part of the neighbourhood. But those, as I was saying, I think are still difficult political arguments to make in the UK for all the things you were saying about attitudes to single, to single market. I'm not sure... Bre- I, I mean, I may, I may be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. But I... But I I think that will be tough and it will get us in a place that isn't the Holy Grail. You know, it's not Nirvana. It just gets us in a place where we have marginally less friction, but we're still taking rules. I suppose the thing that makes my heart sink listening to you talking about that and you you very eloquently 
des- describe it and, and advocate for it, uh, for it in the book is it does sound a little bit like the little brother of the Brexit debate or Brexit Mark II or something. I can still see, you know, political forces aligning up on opposing sides to argue the pros and cons of the of the various things you're you're saying there. It's sort of that the UK still hasn't broken out of the Brexit moment in a way, and and I'm not sure how that's going to happen. I mean, I was listening to I think Matthew Dankana, the 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 journalist earlier this week. He has a piece in in Prospect magazine about about the the centre of politics in Britain, which has been under attack, I suppose, for the last 10 years, and Brexit forms a part of that, but the United Kingdom is not the only place where that has been happening. And he, he was arguing, I think, that for the centre to revive and return to power in a meaningful way, and I think he, he includes both the, the left of the Tory party and Keir Starmer's project, it needs to completely decouple itself from Brexit. But is there a danger that in trying to do these very I would think necessary economic moves, which you've just described there. What you do is you're just reviving the ghost of Brexit, and that, I suppose maybe that explains why Starmer won't say anything about it. No, indeed. Uh, you know, I, but I don't know what the alternative is. Mm. You know, if the alternative is let's just not talk about it, then you just accrue all of the downsides of Brexit over time. I mean, pretty much that is the policy now. Let's not really talk about it, and when we do talk about it. Um, we just talk about it in a cakeish fashion. What what one former diplomat called you know called, called affable cakeism, you know you know Starmer's just got a slightly more affable version of cakeism than Rishi Sunak. I would say that my argument is look, there are no magic bullets here. There are no there's no people sometimes say to me, oh, what's the big idea? Well, how are we going to fix it? As if you know we're still looking for some unicorn. There, there is there are no magic bullets here. But I also what I would what I would argue, and I do argue in the book, is that the process of actually confronting Brexit, what it means for our economy and our society, for our place in the European Union, even if it doesn't lead to us rejoining, and I, you know, I, I, I you know, I don't think we will rejoin. Actually, the process of actually honestly confronting where it leaves us, where the UK, where it shows where the UK's place in the world is, will in its own way be a healing process. Now, you, you know, that's the exact opposite of what you just said. You know, it, it, mm. it just reheats old arguments. But I think the danger is that that actually, by not talking about it, all you're doing is letting it fester. And if you take it back to economic arguments about how we deliver a productive, prosperous economy that's going to pay for our old people and bring good futures for our young people... And we're going to listen to the people that move things and make things, and we're not going to say f business when they tell us things we don't want to hear. That process of going back to fact-based policy making will, you know, has to be the start. Wherever it leads, I think it needs to start with that process, or we're just stuck in the never-never land. Yeah, I mean, there's there's two things that that strike me about that, both of which um, crop up in the book, and the first one is. Uh, I think quite late in the book, you point out that 
there are some questions the UK needs to ask itself about alongside the, the kind of the, the impacts of Brexit over the last few years. Why has it been underperforming longer than that in global terms, in terms of the position of the United Kingdom economy? And what is it about the United Kingdom, its society, its politics, its demographics, whatever they may be, that have that have caused that, particularly outside the the prosperous southeast of of England? And in turn, it's it's those kinds of problems that have led to this, what what Matthew Duncan had described as a kind of revolt against the technocratic centre, as represented by the previous Blair-Cameron administrations, and indeed the EU as well. And those two things are sort of knitted together, aren't they? The sort of the, the political crisis of the centre and the underlying economic stagnation, which goes back beyond Brexit in the United Kingdom. Yeah, indeed, not just in the United Kingdom, you know. Indeed all over the world, you know, the, the stagnation of wages, the inability of, um, you know, Western economies to deliver for their publics and voters has roiled economies all over the world. You see the populist right rising again in Europe. Look at Donald Trump, etc. You know, the UK just happens to have found, it, you know, its expression of its sort of nationalist populist phase. The UK seems to have, well, not seems to, has, you know, it got Brexit, and that, that creates that structural problem. And, and that in itself, that structural problem in itself um, means that it's actually much harder to put it behind you. You know, I, I, you know, I, I didn't read the Dancona piece, but I don't know, you know, if he's saying, let's just not talk about it, I'm not sure that can be a way forward. Mm. I'm not sure how that, how that gets us out of the hole. I think we need to have a really frank conversation about why we have a productivity crisis, why we have an investment crisis, and what we're going to do to fix it. And it needs to be based on some quite hard truths, not, you know, a load of, you know, rah, rah, buccaneering Britain, world beating this and world beating that. We're not world beating in nearly enough things. <laughs> so, you know, how are we going to be world beating? You know, and it goes back to this idea of what's the offer? When I talk to people outside, outside investors, you know, they, they say to me is obviously the last six, seven years have been damaging for the UK because there's just been so much uncertainty. And yes, the, partly of that is Liz, Liz Truss, part of that is Boris Johnson. They were kind of spectacular outpouring. But even now with Sunak and Hunt, you know, this more pragmatic, more sensible um uh, uh, government and to their credit they've done some good things you know the, the the Windsor framework got diplomatic relations moving again they've gone back into horizon after a fashion but it doesn't change the structural impediments to investment for the UK and therefore you know the the, the old offer which was you know stepping stone to Europe etc that's gone in lots of ways you know it makes the UK less attractive than other destinations. So it doesn't mean, you know, the UK gets no investment, of course it doesn't, but it just means over time we get less attractive. So what's the offer going to be? What's it, you know, what in, in the light of where we are, if Keir Starmer's not going to join the single market and customs union, which he says he's not, okay, so what's the offer going to be? 
And mutual recognition for professional qualifications is not the answer. No, no, clearly it isn't. I mean, I'm, I'm searching for optimism at the end of this, this conversation. So could I put it to you that, I mean, um, you've mentioned Liz Trust there, that at least one of the things which is more positive now, even in advance of any fundamental change in the administration, is that, I mean, I was reading about Lord Frost in the House of Lords admitting that himself and Boris Johnson, you know, expected, indeed hoped the Northern Ireland Protocol would fail even as they were were signing it. And I was thinking, how could anybody do business with these people? And charlatans like Johnson and people like Truss and the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg, the fact that they're off the front stage of British politics, surely that helps to some extent in terms of moving forward over the next few years. Yes, indeed. I think, you know, it's undeniable that, you know, an industry feels it too. You know, Kemi Badnock, the Trade Secretary, recently accepted that the EU CE mark should be recognised in the UK, at least um, at least for industrial goods, but not construction goods and not medical devices because they're controlled by two different other ministries in Europe, right? <laughs> so even way, so, so, hallelujah, there's a bit of pragmatism, fantastic. But if you look across the piece, you know, you're still in a world where there's regulatory uncertainty, where even in that one example, the balkanization of the regulatory piece meant that two other ministries that control two other areas have still yet to de- decide what they're going to do about the sea mark. You know, just as a little example of where um, I talk about local anaesthetic, if we're going to sit back and go, well, look, at least we've got rid of the real crazy dogs, right? We've got rid of Johnson and, 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 and Truss and Sunak and Hunt look, you know, sensible enough. My worry is that that, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't take too much comfort from that. You know, that's the bare minimum. You know, we need to, if we accept that we're outside and we're not going back in the single market, et cetera, et cetera, then, you know, we need to get real. We need to have a really serious conversation about, as I say, what the offer is about about how the UK is going to find its new place in the world. And it's not that surprising, honestly, given that, you know, referenda are always divisive and it's the biggest shift since in a generation. It's not surprising that it's roiled our politics. But actually, we are reaching an inflection point now. There are, you know, bigger forces at work coupling of the US and China, rising protectionism in both the China, in both the US and the EU, that are something of a burning platform. And there is an opportunity, I think, for a reset, for a, a better discussion. Though that will come, assuming there is a Labour government, partly from the fact that the people in government are no longer having to defend what went before, which Sunak does even you know, even to a point, Sunak finds himself... Because he has to do it, doesn't he? Of course, of course. Mm. And so, you know, that's that's the political reality. Um, and so, we'll see. I'm going to ask for one last chink of light, uh, <laughs> grasp for one, which is um, uh, one of the absurd things about that um, Daniel Hannan review was he was criticising you, I think, for essentially pointing out the fact that the European Union is a market that is multiple times, six or seven times the size of the United Kingdom. And um, and he was kind of essentially arguing that the United Kingdom should be able to do to the EU with the other way around. And you, you're at pains to point out that, you know, 
the United Kingdom is not as important to the EU as the EU should be to the United Kingdom. But still, in all events, it's not Norway, you know, uh, it's not even Switzerland. It's more important than both those countries as a market for for the many countries of the European Union. I mean, could we be at, at least a, a little bit optimistic that the European Union itself is keen to have as good a economic relationship as possible with um, with with the largest country in Western Europe anyway that's outside it? Yes, and I, and actually one of the things I say in the book is actually that one of the dangers is that the argument gets up that it's just pointless. It's all not worth it. And the EU's disengaged, the EU's moving on, it's more worried about Ukraine. Well, I think the EU's rightfully disengaged because it looks across the channel and it sees even the Sunak uh, government is very limited in where it can actually go. So I think the trick for the Labour government is going to be to signal that it is prepared to open a fundamentally different discussion that isn't about undercutting, it's about you know, the neighbourhood. It's about forming a deep and strategic partnership, which was part of the initial plan, you know, in, in the in the Theresa May deal. And that, I think, is the stepping stone to a better relationship over time. I don't know whether it's a stepping stone to rejoining. I rather doubt not, um, just because of all the political baggage that we talked about. But, you know, the EU is going to have to think hard about its own governance if it's going to uh, bring Ukraine into the fold, if it's going to end up being a block of 35. You can see how the peripheries of the EU may well end up having docking stations that aren't that are more flexible. And I don't want to sound like a Brit who thinks, oh yes, you can cherry pick. Um, but actually, you know, when the implementation review of the trade and cooperation agreement begins in 2026, it'll be 10 years since the uh, uh, referendum post-referendum, Trump had just taken office, the migrant, 2015 migrant crisis had happened, the forces of right-wing populism were rising all over Europe. You know, the bloc got itself in a very defensive crouch. And because when you're negotiating with 27 people, you always end up with what I call highest common denominator um, negotiating. And then you end up negotiating with the Johnson-Frost um, sort of pugilistic Hannon school of diplomacy where you go and assert yourself, it's not entirely surprising that we ended up with a very binary, uh, a very hard deal. Now, you know, I think it's going to take a long time, but I think over time gravity will work its force and over time it will make sense for the UK to end up with deeper partnerships with the EU on security as America... I suspect, pulls away from NATO uh, on on energy, on net zero. Uh, you know, there are just a load of forces, I think, that bring us together. I don't know exactly what that relationship looks like, but I do think that, you know, the argument that we could do it all in Starmer's second term is for the birds. You know, these relationships, they have half-lives and therefore engagement needs to start now, the inflection point that comes with the changing of the guard, if indeed that's what we get uh, at the next election, is an inflection point. And I hope personally that Labour are, are bold and brave and that the European Union takes the opportunity to engage and recognises that there is an opportunity here to get all of us in a better place. 
Peter Foster's book is called What Went Wrong with Brexit and What Can We Do About It? It's available in all good bookshops now. Peter, thanks very much for joining us. My absolute pleasure. And that's it for today. Thanks to Peter. Thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon. We'll be back with you very soon indeed. Until then, thanks for listening.